Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our fourth class in getting started in this group learning program where we started from the very beginning and we're going through an overview of the path to enlightenment. So far, I've taught three classes on Sunday where we explored the Eightfold Path. We broke this down into the section of wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. Last week, we kind of finished off talking about the four jhanas, which are four preliminary phases that the mind goes through prior to reaching the first stage of enlightenment. And I described to you what those are and what you'll experience as the mind's moving through those. Well, today, we're going to be talking about the four stages of enlightenment because that's what would be next for a practitioner moving through the jhanas. They would then start moving through the four stages of enlightenment to actually attain enlightenment in the fourth stage of enlightenment. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today. This is a really helpful class to be able to understand what the ultimate goal is and how to actually get there. So as we've been going through these classes, this is the last class of our overview and also getting in depth into various aspects of the path to enlightenment. So next week, we'll actually be starting with chapter one of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. So this week, you might decide to read the preface if you haven't already and start reading chapter one in preparation for next week's class. So we're going to start today's class talking about the 10 fetters. It's really important in order to understand the path to enlightenment and getting into the various stages of enlightenment to understand what the 10 fetters are and how to actually eliminate them. Because while we've talked very generally about craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality, and these are the three unwholesome roots, or the three fires, or also referred to as the three poisons, these are the high-level descriptions of what's the pollution in the unenlightened mind and what's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. But the way that the Buddha teaches is he has these layers and it's this layer effect where as you pull back more and more layers, you get deeper into understanding the individual problems in the unenlightened mind and how to actually resolve them. So while the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires are this higher level description of the pollution in the mind, it's the 10 fetters, which are the detailed description of what's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. So a person who's going to make their way to enlightenment would need to deeply understand each of the individual fetters and how to eliminate them from the mind. Because once the 10 fetters are eliminated from the mind, then the mind is actually enlightened and will experience this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. 
So what I plan on doing today is talking through each one of the individual fetters, helping you to understand what that fetter is and the antidote or how to eliminate it. And then we'll put together the four stages of enlightenment and show you how as these different fetters are being eliminated from the mind, the mind moves through these four stages of enlightenment. And then we're going to talk in detail about what a Buddha is. I kind of introduced something about what a Buddha is in the very first class of this group learning program. I just touched on it briefly, but we're going to talk about it in more detail in today's class. As we go, of course, you're welcome to ask any questions that you like. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So this first fetter that we're going to talk about is called personal existence view. And before we even talk about that first fetter, let me just explain what a fetter is. This word fetter, we also call it a taint or a pollution. But the word fetter, the way that this translates, it's like a ball and chain that is like around your ankle. It's like a shackle that's around your ankle, this big chain and this big ball. And it's keeping you trapped in this unenlightened state in this cycle of rebirth. So these fetters are what's keeping the mind trapped in that unenlightened state. And by eliminating them, that's what liberates the mind and frees the mind. This first fetter, personal existence view. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about the universal truth of non-self because the universal truth of non-self is the solution or the remedy for this fetter. And this fetter combined with the eighth fetter, which we're gonna talk about a little bit later, which is conceit, these two fetters together are what we refer to as the ego. During the lifetime of the Buddha, this word ego didn't exist. So he explained these two aspects of the mind, these two pollutions of mind that makes up what we today call the ego. But it's really helpful to understand these in two separate pieces because the solutions and how you're going to actually approach them are very different in certain situations. So by understanding the level of detail that the Buddha taught, you'll be able to more readily kind of dissect and cut out and eliminate these from the mind. Personal existence view. This is how the unenlightened mind has the misunderstanding or the false belief or the misperception that this physical body and or this mind is you, who you are as a person. We have this misperception that this physical body is me or is you. And because of that, we will defend and protect this physical body from a mental standpoint. So we have a certain self-image that the mind is wanting to project in the world. So we do certain things with our hair, with our skin, with our jewelry, with our makeup, with certain products that we purchase in order to maybe smell better and carry things and kind of project a certain image in the world. And this self-image is who the unenlightened mind thinks we are as a person. And now if we hear agreeable words or compliments about our self-image, then there's these conditioned pleasant feelings that arise in the mind. But it's only a matter of time before you hear something that's disagreeable about the self-image. And now when you hear those, then there's these painful feelings that arise in the mind. And the mind, as long as it thinks that this physical body is you, as long as there's this self-image that the mind is holding on to, thinking this is who you are as a person, then the mind's going to be shaken up whenever you hear something agreeable or something disagreeable. 
And then there's this self-identity, this aspects of the mind that I am a Buddhist teacher, or I am an American, or I am an Egyptian, or I am an artist, or I am in the military, or I am an airplane pilot, or I am from Pakistan, or I am a pet lover. Any of these I am, I am, I am is this self-identity that's held onto in the mind, and the mind thinks that this is who you are as a person. And once again, when you hear something agreeable, there will be these pleasant feelings that arise. And then when you hear something disagreeable, there's going to be these painful feelings arise. And because of the universal truth of impermanence, it's impossible for you to always hear agreeable things. So it's only a matter of time before something disagreeable is heard. And then that's going to cause the mind to be shaken up. So this pollution of mind is that the unenlightened mind is holding on to this personal existence view, thinking that this physical body, this self-image, or this mind, this self-identity is who you are as a person. And what the Buddha guides you to understand in the universal truth of non-self is that this isn't who you are as a person. This physical body and the things that are in your mind doesn't make who you are as a person. So for example, if you've had body issues or if you've felt like you've gotten too big or too skinny or you don't fit in because you don't look the same as everybody else. Well, we can't all look the same because of the universal truth of impermanence. There's no normal person because everybody looks different. So the solution to training the mind is to let go of thinking that this body is who you are as a person. And likewise, if you ever had an amputation where you lost your arm or your leg, the mind can be really shaken up by that, thinking that this body is who you are. But if you lose a particular uh, limb, it doesn't make you a less of a person. It just means that now that limb was impermanent, just like we always knew, but that doesn't make who you are as a person. You can still function and have a wonderful life, even though you don't have a certain limb. And then likewise, if you have certain things in the mind, like say you were in the military or you were a police officer, or you were a doctor or a lawyer or something like this, and you started to identify with this is who you are as a person. Now when impermanence comes along and you don't have that job, maybe there's an injury, maybe you've got laid off of work, maybe some other reason that you're no longer performing that function or that role in society as a job, maybe you've even just retired. Now the mind really struggles in that period because it doesn't like this impermanence, because the mind was holding on to this identity of being in the military or the police officer or a doctor or a lawyer or some other occupation. And now as everything starts to shift, the mind doesn't quite feel comfortable in that situation because it's identifying with this personal existence view, thinking this is who you are as a person. This can actually become so difficult for some people that they might even profess that I don't even know who I am anymore. I need to go on this journey of self-discovery. I need to go find myself. But the thing is, is that when people go on this journey to find their self, they actually never really find their self. They may find some new hobby or new activity or new friends to spend time with, but they haven't really found themselves because there is no self there. 
things are constantly changing in our life due to the universal truth of impermanence. So as long as the mind is holding on to this physical body, this self-image, or as long as the mind is holding on to the self-identity in the mind, then it's going to be shaken up with either conditioned pleasant feelings or conditioned painful feelings at some point. And there's multiple practices and multiple understanding and teachings that you need to understand in order to gradually start letting go of this personal existence view to realize non-self, to realize that there is no self there. So you may start to kind of understand this as I'm talking about it now, but to really train the mind to function and practice in such a way that when you hear something agreeable about the self-image or self-identity, or if you hear something disagreeable about the self-image or self-identity, that it's not shaken up, that's a whole different aspect of your practice. Because remember, you need to go through the learning, the reflection, and the practice. And in order to eliminate personal existence view, a practitioner would first have to learn all those basic teachings that we've already started to share and that we're going to share some more as part of this program is that three universal truths, the four noble truths, all those aspects of the Eightfold Path, including meditation, the five precepts, practicing those really, really well and some other teachings. And you're kind of preparing the mind to get to these jhanas. And then when the jhanas, those four preliminary phases that we talked about last week, start to appear in the mind, this is like an indication that the mind is ready to start really focusing on these fetters. And one of the first fetters that you would focus on is this personal existence view so that you can start eliminating that. And when you get to that point where you're starting to experience the jhanas and you've got all these other teachings well underway, then you will typically you know, read the book. There's two different places in that first volume that I talk about personal existence view and the universal truth of non-self. You'll typically have multiple conversations with your teacher. There's different things that we need to make sure that you understand about personal existence view and realizing non-self. And there's some additional practices that we'll share in order to help you eliminate personal existence view. In chapter 16 of this book, volume one, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, I go into a lot of detail explaining personal existence view and how to eliminate it. And it's towards the end of the book for a reason because there's a lot of other teachings that need to be put together before somebody really approaches this. The mind needs to kind of be prepared for it. So here today, I'm just kind of sharing with you a bit of an overview as we've been doing in the last three classes to help you understand what these fetters are and what this personal existence view is. So if you don't deeply understand it at this point, it's okay. This is just an introduction for you to help you start understanding it. And then we'll get much deeper into it as we move throughout this program. This second fetter is called doubt. Doubt is eliminating the doubt in the mind about the Buddha, about the teachings, about the community of practitioners that you're part of, your teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. A person would need to develop confidence that the Buddha was indeed enlightened, that his teachings absolutely lead to enlightenment, that the community of practitioners that you're learning and practicing with are practicing well and are a helpful support system for you to learn and practice within, that the teachings that your teacher are sharing are actually leading to the improvement in the condition of the mind, 
and that you have the ability to actually progress on this path. And the way that you eliminate this doubt is not by belief, because as you've heard me share that all belief needs to be eliminated and actually to get to enlightenment, you need to independently verify the teachings. And through that, you can see the truth and acquire wisdom because with belief, the mind is shaken up. It doesn't know whether something's true or false. So the way that you eliminate doubt is actually by learning and practicing the teachings. The more that you learn all those beginning teachings and you start practicing them and you start seeing the condition of your mind improve, this is where you get to the point that you have no doubt that these teachings are indeed leading you to a better condition of mind. Because if you've put together those beginning teachings of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path and others to include meditation, and you're starting to get into the jhanas and starting to experience the benefits of those, then you'll get to a point where you have no doubt that the Buddha was indeed enlightened because 2,500 years ago he shared these teachings and here you are experiencing benefit from them today. The teachings that you're learning are indeed improving the condition of the mind, this community that you're practicing within, your teacher is helping you and those teachings that your teacher has shared with you is helping you to progress and you're experiencing these jhanas and you have no doubt about your abilities to attain enlightenment. You have this confidence now because you've put together so many of the teachings that you're already starting to see improvements. So the doubt is gradually eroded as you investigate the teachings through learning, reflecting, and practicing. When someone first starts learning the Buddhist teachings, like maybe you are, I always think that there's a certain amount of healthy doubt that is in a new practitioner's mind. I consider this to be healthy doubt because doubt can actually cause the mind to be inquisitive. And if your mind is inquisitive and you have this healthy doubt where you're honestly and sincerely actively looking to understand the teachings and moving in the direction to understand them, then this doubt can actually motivate and encourage you in order to investigate the teachings so that you do learn, reflect, and practice, where you're willing to roll up the sleeves and really dive in and actually start investigating the teachings and experiencing the results through your practice. So if you have doubt about the Buddhist teachings right now, that's completely normal. And you can use that to your advantage to motivate and encourage you to really investigate and see whether these teachings are actually true or not. Not through belief, but through investigation, through learning, reflecting, and practicing, and observing the condition of the mind improving, you'll gradually erode this doubt. The third fetter or pollution of mind is what the Buddha referred to as wrong behavior and observances. What this refers to is if the mind has the belief that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship are going to help you to attain enlightenment, then this is a wrong behavior and observance because there's no amount of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that's going to improve the condition of the mind. Because the number one problem in the mind is this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. The reason why the mind experiences discontentedness is because of craving, desire, attachment. But the reason why craving, desire, attachment exists in the mind is because of the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. That when we're off this path and we don't know any better because we've never learned, we lack wisdom, then that craving, desire, attachment is allowed to persist and that motivates the anger. So this craving, anger, and ignorance persists because of ignorance. These 
Ten fetters persist because of ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. And what antidotes that is wisdom. And by learning, reflecting, and practicing, not by belief. So rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship isn't going to antidote or fix ignorance. In fact, if we do practice rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, that is part of the ignorance and the unknowing of true reality because we might think a little bit of water sprinkled on us is going to somehow benefit us or having a string tied around our wrist is going to somehow benefit us or some other rite ritual or ceremony or worship that you might have learned along the way. We believe that these things are going to help, but yet they don't actually improve the condition of the mind. It's through learning reflecting and practicing that we see the truth we gain wisdom and we make wiser decisions in the world and when we make wiser decisions this leads to wholesome outcomes that improves our life during the lifetime of the buddha the common person believed that they could go to this upper class of people called brahmin pay them money and then they could go home and those Brahmin would now pray on their behalf and perform rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and these people's lives would get better at home. But of course, this doesn't work because if you go pay somebody money to pray on your behalf, and now you go home and you're harsh and aggressive and bitter with people, with your family, with your friends, with your employer, with your neighbor, your life's going to be miserable. So what the Buddha is guiding us to understand is that these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship isn't going to improve the condition of our mind because we need to train the mind to have this wisdom, this moral conduct, and this mental discipline. And that comes through learning, reflecting, and practicing teachings, not through rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. So someone who's eliminated wrong behavior and observances will be deeply practicing the Eightfold Path and have put that together really, really well. And they will understand that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship isn't what's improving the condition of their mind. It's actually training the mind to acquire wisdom. And now with that wisdom, you make wiser decisions about your moral conduct and your mental discipline. And through making those wise, wholesome decisions, you experience wholesome results because you're now purging the unwise and unwholesome decisions that lead to unwholesome results. So this is an important one to purge and let go of. So if that's something that you already understand, that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship isn't actually something that is going to lead to the improvement to the condition of your mind, then that's wonderful. Some people actually move to Buddhist teachings because they have done those things in the past and they realize they're not working and they move toward the Buddhist teachings because they realize that they need something more than that that's not going to actually produce beneficial results. So the only other thing you need to do then in order to eliminate this fetter is start putting together the Eightfold Path so that you're deeply practicing that and improving your wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline around those eight steps of the Eightfold Path. Number four is central desire. This is how the mind longs through the six senses and it craves permanent pleasant feelings. It craves these pleasant feelings, but it bases its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. So therefore, the feelings that are experienced are just temporary. That's why the happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, all of this is temporary because the mind is longing and yearning with central desire 
through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. These six sense bases are the way that the mind is trying to take in contact from the outside world in order to produce these pleasant feelings. But the problem is, is that it's basing its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. So these feelings are just temporary. And it's only a matter of time before those impermanent conditions change. And now the mind moves from these conditioned, pleasant feelings over to these painful feelings of anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, and others. So the mind needs to understand that the eyes are longing to see agreeable forms and as long as it's longing for agreeable forms to see with the eyes it'll have those conditioned pleasant feelings but then when it sees something disagreeable some form through the eyes now it's going to experience painful feelings and then the mind is longing through the ears for this agreeable sound it wants agreeable sounds and as long as it gets that it experiences these conditioned pleasant feelings but when there's these disagreeable sounds coming in through the ears then the mind experiences these painful feelings the mind longs for these agreeable odors coming through the nose and when it gets that it experiences these conditioned pleasant feelings and when it gets disagreeable odors, it experiences these painful feelings. And then there are certain flavors of the tongue. Same thing, agreeable, it experiences pleasant feelings. Disagreeable, it experiences painful feelings. Physical objects touching the body, again, agreeable, pleasant feelings, disagreeable, painful feelings. And now the mind is longing and yearning for certain objects through the mind that it wants to think about and have these certain pleasant thoughts and get these agreeable thoughts and now there's these pleasant conditioned feelings that are arising and then when there's something disagreeable that comes into the mind there's these painful feelings so the mind keeps going up and down and up and down and up and down and i can use some examples here to help you understand this if you have ever been listening to your music and music that you enjoy and that you like and you've heard this agreeable sound in the ear and you're like, oh, wow, this is such great music. I really enjoy this music. Oh, it's so wonderful. Puts you in such a great mood, right? Because you have this condition that's being met of this agreeable music that's coming through the ears. But then if your neighbor or somebody else is playing music that you don't like and it's disagreeable to the mind, now there's anger, frustration. You might even bang on the wall if you live in a you know, dwelling that's close by or you might knock on their door and be unskillful in your speech and actions and trying to get them to turn off this music. And you can go through each one of these sense bases and you can see how Anytime the mind is experiencing discontentedness, it's because you're experiencing agreeable or disagreeable contact through these six sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact, or the mind. So the way to eliminate central desire is through eliminating craving desire attachment. 
the mental longing with a strong eagerness that the mind wants these pleasurable experiences. Instead, we use breathing mindfulness meditation in order to train the mind to let go, and we use generosity to train the mind to let go. And by doing this over a consistent long-term basis, the mind is gradually trained to let go, to let go, to let go, and to reside in the middle and no longer see things as agreeable and disagreeable, but just see everything as impermanent. And this gradually trains the mind to let go of always wanting to be pleased. Because as long as the mind has this mental longing and strong eagerness, through these sense spaces, it's going to continue to be shaken up with these conditioned pleasant feelings and these conditioned painful feelings. And then when the mind gets what it wants, again, it experiences these pleasant feelings. And then if it doesn't get what it wants, then this ill will or number five, this fetter of ill will can arise in the mind when it's experiencing disagreeable contact through these sense bases. There's this hostility or this hatred, this anger, this aggression, resentment, frustration, irritation, and annoyance. We use ill will to describe it because it's kind of a stronger word, but there's lesser versions of that, like an annoyance. Even just a slight annoyance, the mind is still tapping into that ill will because it's not getting the objects of its affection through central desire. So now the mind moves and arises this ill will. And this can be antidoted and eliminated from the mind by practicing loving kindness meditation. We are train the mind through loving kindness meditation, cultivating this in the mind, this active goodwill, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And then when we cultivate that through multiple sessions of meditation, then we go out into the world and we practice right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood in order to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings around us. Because what you start to understand as you're making your way into these four stages of enlightenment is that anything that you put out is going to come back to you. So as long as you're putting out hostility and aggression and bitterness and resentment and frustration, all these other feelings that are part of ill will, that's what's going to come back to you. So you start to train your mind and you start to train through this wisdom, this moral conduct and this mental discipline to now eliminate ill will and start practicing through your intention, speech, and actions to always be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. And through doing this over a long-term period of time, you're transforming the mind and experiencing more and more results where the mind is in this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And the people around you are also being very wholesome and treating you that way as well. But it takes a long time to transition the mind and move towards that. It's not going to happen in one week or one month or even two or three months. You have to really work at this and evolve over time. And as you do, you'll see these gradual improvements to the condition of the mind. So it's loving kindness meditation that we cultivate on an ongoing basis. And then we practice in daily life through our intention, speech, and actions to ensure that we're not causing harm to other beings because that harm is only going to come back to us. Let me pause here now that we've talked about the lower fetters and see what questions you guys might have. So remember to put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. I'm not sure. 
As for the first fitter, which is personal existence view, is this what makes a person feels that they are the center of the universe? This is more conceit, which is the eighth fetter, but these two together are what we call the ego. So it's the ego or conceit, this arrogance and pride that makes people feel like they're the center of the universe. One of the things that's really challenging with personal existence view in conceit as well is we've been taught for a lot of us all throughout our life that, you know, leave your mark on society. You know, you've got to be somebody. Go out there in the world and be somebody. But in order to get to enlightenment, you have to train the mind to be a nobody. This is actually much more challenging than being a somebody. And when we say be a nobody, I don't mean like be diminishing or degrading to yourself, but it's understanding that that arrogance and pride that you're talking about being the center of the universe isn't going to produce wholesome relationships. Because if we walk around with this chip on our shoulder, thinking that we are the center of the universe, then people aren't going to feel comfortable being around us. And this is going to produce results in our relationships where it's very challenging to live harmoniously and peacefully with other beings because we think that we're the center of the universe and above others. Well, as for the second factor, uh, having confidence in our ability to attain enlightenment. If someone had made many mistakes in their life, I mean, if someone feels that they didn't made any success at all in their life, don't you think that it will be challenging for them to have confidence in their ability to eliminate all cravings? Yeah, there's a lot of challenges, especially when we first start the path, because our mind has been conditioned in many ways in the past. Some people will come into this path with lacking confidence or having arrogance and conceit, which is just the opposite of lacking confidence. Everybody's starting at a different place and the mind is polluted in varying degrees in different ways. So even though we've had certain experiences and that's conditioned our mind to think and function in a certain way, as you move into this path, what it's about is training the mind to uncondition, to eliminate these pollutions of mind, to get to this unconditioned mind where now the mind is purified through training the mind. So if somebody comes to this path lacking confidence, then one of the things that they will build as part of their path to enlightenment is they will develop confidence. But if somebody comes to this path with arrogance and pride and being boastful, that person is going to need to train their mind to come down. So there's this middle way that the Buddha taught. Lacking confidence is on one side. Conceit and arrogance and boastfulness is on the other side. And a person who comes with the lack of confidence, they need to move to the middle. And this person who comes with arrogance and boastfulness, they need to move to the middle. And they're moving in different directions, but they're two different situations. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to work with a teacher, because this path isn't a one-size-fits-all. There is a clear path to enlightenment, but everybody comes to this path with different degrees and different amounts and different types of pollution in the mind. And a teacher is going to be able to help read that and understand that about your mind and then provide certain teachings to help you overcome those things and come to the middle. And this is why a teacher needs to be able to do this with loving kindness and compassion without any interest for any gain themselves, but just with a pure interest to help their students because the students are really struggling. And when you're in the dark, 
darkness, when your mind is polluted, it's very difficult for you to see that. When you're walking around with arrogance and pride and boastfulness, it's very difficult for you to see that. Or if you're lacking confidence, it may be hard for you to see that. So a teacher's role, one of their roles, is to be able to observe the various qualities of their student's mind and then provide them some teachings that will help them to come to the middle. And this is one of the reasons why spending time with your teacher in personal discussions or even one-on-one, not only online, but in person, where they can spend time with you and interact with you, they can observe more of your practice and how you're doing things in the world and this will help you to move that lack of confidence to the middle or that arrogance and pridefulness into the middle well uh, believing in luck or let's say that uh, believing that uh, some kind of rings will bring us power or so on is this a kind of uh, wrong behavior and observances Yes, there's no such thing as luck. We use this a lot like, oh, good luck or that was bad luck or, you know, I don't have good luck or something like this. But a being who's making their way to this first stage of enlightenment starts to deeply understand the natural law of gamma of cause and effect and action and result. Every single thing that we experience in our life is as a result of our decisions. It's our life, our decisions, and our results. And if you right now use that language of good luck or bad luck or things like this, that's okay. That's where you're at now. But the more that you understand this path to enlightenment and you start being able to see very clearly that it's all your decisions that's leading to either wholesome results or it's all your decisions that are leading to unwholesome results, then you start to understand that there's no such thing as luck. So there's no ring or jewelry or anything like this family heirloom that's going to bring you good luck, so to speak, because everything that happens in your life is a result of your decisions right now and the things that you've made decisions about in the past. So anything that you're experiencing now is based on decisions you made in the past and those effects are coming back to you. And now any decisions you're making now, you're going to experience that now and in the future. So the more that you understand this, the more your mind can acquire this wisdom and eliminate this wrong behavior and observances, which is part of the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. Some people call this delusion or confusion or misunderstanding. So that third poison or that third unwholesome root of ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, part of that is thinking that there is such thing as good luck. But when you deeply practice these teachings, you can see that it's all cause and effect. Everything that happens in our life is as a result of our own decisions. And the more that you see that clearly, the more the mind will come out of that delusion or misunderstanding or confusion. And same thing when your mind comes out of that delusion or misunderstanding that it's rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that's going to improve the condition of the mind, then you come out of that confusion, misunderstanding, and delusion. This is why you see people that can go into a building and do all kinds of worship, but then in the parking lot, they're arguing and squabbling, honking the horns, everybody's racing out of the parking lot. Me first, me first, me first, because it doesn't matter how much worship you're doing, if you're not gaining wisdom in order to transform the mind, then you're not going to be making wise decisions. There's still going to be this craving, anger, and ignorance that is motivating your decisions, which are going to be unwise, and they're going to produce unwholesome results. So the more you eliminate these pollutions of mind, 
then the mind can now make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. Thanks, sir. Let's go to Marcy. Thank you, Bossom. Thank you, Teacher David. <clears throat> Teacher David, the statement of like someone would say, um, I'm here and I have a purpose. Would that be something that would apply to a personal existence view? It can be that. It can also be the conceit. If somebody truly thinks that they have, you know, this God-given purpose or this sanctioned approach that, you know, I've got this purpose on this earth and I'm going to fulfill my purpose. You know, this is definitely craving. It's also personal existence view and conceit. You know, this is something that's really pumped into our minds that we're supposed to have this purpose and we're supposed to leave our mark on society. But one of the things that I reflected on in going through this is, you know, think back to a couple hundred years ago or 500 years ago, how many beings must have existed over the last several hundred years? There must have been billions and billions and billions and billions of beings. But how many do we really know about today? And how many things that they've actually done that we actually understand and know about today? So all throughout history, there's been billions and billions and billions of beings. And there's people, you know, that are, of course, really well-known. You know, in America, you understand George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Ben Franklin, Thomas Edison, these kind of things. And in other countries, there's other people that have really done some significant things that people still remember them and remember their work. But it's very few considering the billions and billions of people that have walked this planet. And here's a being today thinking that I'm going to leave my mark on society. I have a purpose, you know, Essentially, the mind's like, I want to be written into the history books. Well, this is just the mind, you know, craving and longing and yearning. Yes, there could be some self-image and self-identity there, but a lot of that is conceit and arrogance and pride. Well, let's go to Nick. Thank you, Bonson. Hello, teacher. I was uh, looking for some clarification on what the mind need in, in regards to sensual desire on what the mind needs to understand about the mind. For example, I, I know we're not supposed to base our inner feelings on external impermanent conditions, but the question is the mind is internal. Yeah, it's not just external conditions, it's impermanent conditions. So for example, something through the sixth sense base of the mind, say something happened in the past and there was some pleasurable thing or some painful thing that happened in the past. Now the mind is back in the past yearning for those same pleasant experiences or beating yourself up about the painful experiences that you've had. So there's no contact anymore with those experiences because those experiences are in the past. So there's nothing that the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, or bodily contact is coming in contact with, but the mind is in the past now longing and yearning for that. So a simple example is just say that you were very wealthy in the past and now for the decisions that you've made, you're not having as much income, your income is dropped. You're not able to afford the same things that you used to purchase in the past. Well, now in the present moment, the mind can experience discontentedness when it's longing and yearning for that money from the past and those past experiences of being able to afford certain things. Now the mind's going to cause itself discontentedness 
through that sixth sense base because it's longing for something in the past. And the same thing can happen for the future. Like, let's say you're going to go on a holiday or a vacation and say your mind is longing and yearning to go on that holiday. And now because of that, the mind is causing itself discontentedness. So this is how that sixth sense base comes into play. You think it would be okay to think of the sixth sense base as thought instead of the mind? Because I understand um, there's three entities. There's the body, there's the mind, and then there's the person. So I was just getting a little confused. Would that be okay to think of the sixth as thought? So there's the internal sense base and there's the external sense base. The internal sense base is the mind, just like eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. It is the internal sense base. And the external sense base for the mind is mental objects. So if you think about that as thoughts, that external sense base, then yeah, you can think of it that way. But it is internal, it's in the mind. But some people think about the mind as being external. But it is the mind, the sense base itself is the mind. But then what it's longing for and yearning for are these mental objects or these thoughts or these pleasant experiences or these painful experiences, certain objects of its affection. So a mental object, for example, in this situation is this longing and yearning to go on a holiday two months from now and now the mind is longing and yearning for that the mind's going to be discontent when it's experiencing that and if they can't go to the holiday they're going to experience painful feelings for that so there's going to be these pleasant feelings and painful feelings in the mind which is the internal sense base whenever it's longing and yearning for certain mental objects or certain things uh, related to thoughts or things that are going on in the mind understand thank you for the explanation teacher you're welcome i have a follow-up thank you i have a follow-up question um for about something that was asked earlier uh a question that came to mind um would would someone like the buddha uh, would they think that they have a purpose knowing full well that they're going to leave a mark on society yeah so during the lifetime of the Buddha, he knew that his teachings were important for the world and that they would eventually reach the entire world. But they're going to progress through that without craving desire attachment. He knew it wasn't going to be for many thousands of years later before his teachings actually reached the whole world because he knew during his lifetime he was going to build up the teachings, then they were going to decline and it wasn't until 2,500 years later that this new Buddha was going to arise, bring the teachings into the world, and then from there they were going to arise beyond that. So a Buddha knows that they need to share the teachings because that's what their goal is, their objective is. They have such loving kindness and compassion for the world that they're interested in sharing their teachings. But it's not that they walk around with this chip on their shoulder or this arrogance or this boastfulness like you know this is my purpose in life i must do this i'm required to do this this isn't how a buddha thinks because they're not required to do it the buddha when he awoke to enlightenment he could have very easily went back to the palace and just continued to be a royal king but he wouldn't have been a buddha in that situation he would have just been an enlightened being who attained enlightenment and went back to the palace but when a Buddha awakes, they know, based on the criteria that I'm going to share with you today, that they are a Buddha. 
but they don't really see it as their purpose. They more see it, at least from my experience, as more of like an obligation or a responsibility rather than a purpose. It's more of a responsibility now that they've done this hard work over multiple, multiple lifetimes and they've been able to attain this mental state of enlightenment and they know that there's no one else on the face of the earth during their lifetime that has the same wisdom and understanding and capability to deliver the teachings in the same way that they do. They have this responsibility that they're because of their loving kindness and compassion for the world, they're very interested in ensuring that these teachings reach all those with a sincere interest so that the teachings can continue on in the world, which to me is different than a purpose, where oftentimes when we think about this purpose, we think about it with arrogance or pride, which a Buddha wouldn't have. Also something like a purpose, you know, like a destiny or something like that. Exactly. They know that a Buddha has arisen because of the cause and effect. They don't think of themselves as a special person. They don't think of themselves as, you know, like you're saying, like it was my destiny. They know that it was their decisions over multiple lifetimes that led to their enlightenment. And that was a extremely difficult struggle and a very challenging struggle through all those different lifetimes. And because of the struggles that they endured for all those lifetimes, now finally getting to enlightenment on their own with that deep wisdom, they then have this loving kindness and compassion for all other beings. And they know if they don't share their teachings, that the teachings are going to die with them. And because they have such loving kindness and compassion for all beings in the world, they take it on as their responsibility to then share those teachings with the world. And that's why they completely put aside any kind of personal pursuits because they've eliminated all their craving, desire, attachments. They're no longer interested in doing anything for themselves because that self no longer exists. They've eliminated all craving, all yearning, all longing. The only thing that they're interested in doing for the rest of their life is sharing their teachings with others. And they're going to find any way that they can to accomplish that goal. And they see it as their responsibility and their way of helping humanity because they know the struggle that they endured for so many lifetimes. And they're not interested in seeing other beings go through that struggle. And of course, other beings have to go through that struggle. But that struggle is going to be made a million times easier once a Buddha shares their teachings because other beings, they can't get to enlightenment on their own. The only way that they can do it is with a Buddhist teachings and with the guidance of somebody who understands the Buddhist teachings. So because of that long-term struggle over multiple lives and this loving kindness and compassion that's deeply in the mind and this wisdom that they have, they then dedicate the rest of their life to helping all of humanity, no longer interested in any kind of selfish desires because central desire is gone, the self's gone, arrogance is gone. They don't care about fame or fortune or anything like that. They'll just humbly go about their work and sharing the teachings with all those people who are interested in learning and progressing to enlightenment. That's a beautiful explanation. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. We have a question from Denise on Facebook. She asks, does talking about past trauma with others lead to attachment? It doesn't mean that it necessarily is going to lead to attachment. There may already be craving, desire, attachment in the mind. That's the reason why somebody feels the need to talk about their trauma with others. 
the traumas that we experience, and I'll just call it conditioning of the mind, because when we experience a certain experience, we call that trauma today. And that kind of puts the mind and the person in a position of being a victim, where if we understand that these are conditioned experiences where we have certain experiences and the mind is conditioned to be fearful or other types of emotions based on certain things that happen to us, then rather than think of it as trauma, if you think about it as just situations that occurred that were based on certain decisions that were made or not made, and now my goal is to eliminate this conditioning of mind and let it go, then Sometimes letting it go, it means that talking it out with somebody and sharing it with somebody can be helpful. But oftentimes we share these things with people that actually don't know how to help us. It's just a friend or a family member or somebody like this. And it's just kind of almost like frivolous talk to a certain degree because we might just be speaking about the experiences that we've had but we're not really doing the work necessarily. And we're not really talking to somebody who can help us do the work to eliminate that and purge it from the mind. Oftentimes we relive those experiences over and over and over again. It's not until we deeply train the mind to get rid of that conditioning and purify the mind and uncondition it that yeah, we can speak about those traumas with somebody like a Buddhist teacher, somebody that you should trust. And then as you speak about those things and that person hears it and understands it, then they can help you with training of how to let that go once and for all and wipe it clean. Because oftentimes when we first come to this path, there's all kinds of stuff we've been sweeping under the carpet and our carpet is, you know, got all this dust built up. And then as we start on this path and we get under training, it's like ripping the carpet back and all the dust is flying around. Well, if you're just talking with somebody that doesn't know and doesn't understand how to eliminate this dust, then the dust is just going to settle and you're going to have to sweep it back under the carpet again. So if you're going to rip back the carpet, be sure that you're talking with somebody that knows how to clear this dust out of the house and get it out of the windows so that it never comes back and affects you. That's what's important. So just talking about it doesn't mean that there's a craving, desire, attachment. It means the mind's holding on to something, which is these experiences from the past. And if you're going to go through the difficulties of bringing that stuff back up and talking about it, be sure to do that with somebody that can really help you. Because oftentimes what we're taught is that we're supposed to relive those experiences over and over and over and over and over and over and just keep talking about them with everybody. And it's almost like we're on this broken record or this cycle, right? The cycle of rebirth where the mind's just constantly reliving those things, but the mind doesn't really sweep the dust out and get it out of the house. So if you're going to bring that stuff up, which you're probably going to need to do in order to fully let it go, just be sure that you're doing that with somebody that knows how to help you get rid of it once and for all so that you never have to relive that stuff again. Because all of us, to a certain degree, have had various difficult experiences in the challenged past in one aspect of life or another. And these things that have happened and things that we've encountered and experienced, it doesn't define who we are as a person. But as long as the mind holds on to it, it's going to continue to suffer. It's going to continue to have painful feelings. But when we can clear it out once and for all, then we can move on. 
we'll always remember that these things happened and we experienced these things, but it's very different remembering that these things happen and not allowing it to affect you today versus these things are being held onto in the mind that keep coming up over and over and over again and keep shaking the mind up over and over and over again. That's where a lot of people are when they first get on this path because the mind's holding on to so many difficult situations from the past. But what this path is about is training the mind to eliminate the things that hurt you so that they will never hurt you again. And the way that you do that is you bring this stuff up through these teachings, you purify the mind, clear it out once and for all, and now the mind's purified. But you always remember that these things happen, but it won't affect you in any negative way because the mind has cleaned all that out, so to speak. Thanks, sir. No more questions for now. All right. Well, let's move on to the next five fetters, which are called the higher fetters. This is the next part of the 10 fetters. And I'm gonna talk about the six and seven at the same time because they're very similar. This is desire for form and desire for formless. What desire for form is, is the elimination of any desire for existence in the form realms of animal and human. We call this the form realms because an animal has physical form and a human being has physical form. And what seven is, is the desire for the formless realms or existence in the formless realms, like hell, afflicted spirits in the heavenly realm. These beings don't have physical form, but they have existence. And there's beings today, human beings, who aspire to be reborn in heaven or aspire to be reborn in hell even. And as long as you have this desire to exist, these is still existence, whether it's in hell animal, afflicted spirits, human or heavenly realm, if the mind has this craving, desire, attachment for existence in any of these realms, then the mind is going to experience continuous rebirth. And just because your mind craves to be reborn in heaven doesn't mean that that's the way it's going to be. A lot of people have been taught that they just have one life and as long as they do certain things or they believe certain things in this life, that they're going to automatically be reborn in heaven and they're going to stay there permanently. But this is with a lack of understanding of the universal truth of impermanence. This is a lack of understanding of the cycle of rebirth. This is that ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And as long as the mind has this craving for existence in these various realms and craving for existence, then oftentimes there's fear of death. The mind can have this fear of death because when there's belief, when someone believes they're going to be reborn in heaven, but they don't really know for sure, 100%, if they're going to go to heaven, then people can fear death. There's a lot of people in the world that believe they're going to go to heaven after this life, but they're very afraid of death. And this doesn't match, right? If somebody firmly believes that they're going to go to heaven after death, they shouldn't fear death whatsoever. But these beings actually fear death quite a bit. And this is where belief, the mind doesn't know if it's true or false, and that's why it can be shaken up. So this is why a lot of people who believe they're going to be reborn or that they're going to go to heaven after this life, this is why they fear death, because they don't know whether it's true or false. They're just believing 
But when you know the truth and you learn and practice these teachings and you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing in the mind, you know you're learning the truth. And these five realms of existence that the Buddha taught, there's ways to independently verify this and see this truth for yourself, that there is the cycle of rebirth, that you don't have just one life, that you have lived countless lives in the past and you will relive and be reborn again in the future if you don't get to enlightenment. But this cycle of rebirth is something that I usually suggest for beginning practitioners to just set to the side because it can be a real distraction in your practice if you put this up front. Well, as you learn and practice things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, and so on, and the mind starts moving to this higher consciousness, there's some beings who can observe their past lives. And this is one of the ways that you confirm that the cycle of rebirth is indeed the truth, is that if you observe your past lives or you have memories of your past lives, then you know that the cycle of rebirth is true. Not everybody who gets to enlightenment is going to experience the observation of past lives, but there are people who do experience that. But if you put this cycle of rebirth up front in your practice and you try to pick away at it and try to figure it out very early, it can be a real distraction because it's more challenging for you to independently verify that, particularly early in practice. So what I suggest is people just set that aside and focus on the real true path that is going to awaken the mind to this higher consciousness. This higher consciousness is like being on the top of a mountain and looking over all these different cities and seeing how all the streets and roads connect together. Where when your mind is not in this higher consciousness towards this enlightened mental state, it's like walking out of your door and just seeing the street that you're on. And you just see the street that you're on. You just see the life that you're living right now. But as you progress and you clear out more and more pollution of the mind, it's like moving to the top of this mountain, this higher consciousness. And oftentimes people can see all the different roads and how they're connecting all the different lives that you've lived. You might start having these residual memories. There's other ways to help you confirm the cycle of rebirth aside from even observing your past lives. In chapter 22, which is towards the end of this first book, there's a chapter that I devote to helping you see a little bit of that, of how your mind has evolved from these animal consciousness, this animal existences into human existence. So we're going to discuss that at chapter 22, which is towards the end of the book, because there's a lot of other work that you need to do before you're ready to approach that topic. And then in this entire book series out of the 13 books, book 11 is all about the realms of existence and the cycle of rebirth. And it's book 11 for a reason, because there's a lot of other learning that you need to do before you're ready to really approach that. But this person who is eliminating fetter six and seven, desire for form and desire for formless, will have no interest in existence in the cycle of rebirth in any of the realms at all because they know that any existence is going to mean that the mind is still experiencing discontentedness. Even in that heavenly realm, those beings are still experiencing discontentedness. They can attain enlightenment from that realm but oftentimes they lack motivation because they experience exclusively pleasant feelings. But that's still discontentedness. And oftentimes because they're complacent and lack motivation, they're reborn down into the lower realms or back into the human realm. So existing in heaven is not the ultimate goal of this path. 
The goal is to get to enlightenment. And then once you attain enlightenment, then you're no longer going to exist in the cycle of rebirth. What happens once somebody attains enlightenment and dies is an undeclared teaching. The Buddha didn't explain what happens next. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that could be. He explained that if you don't attain enlightenment, you're going to continue in the cycle of rebirth. And we know that to be true through all the various teachings and through various experiences that people can have in this life. But in terms of once you attain enlightenment and die, the Buddha didn't explain what happens at that point. He left it as an undeclared teaching. A person can attain enlightenment during this life, and they can observe that the condition of the mind is gradually improving and moving towards enlightenment. But you can also attain enlightenment at death as well. Of course, you're not interested in banking on that goal. And even if you did attain enlightenment at death, okay, that's the next best option. The best option would be to apply effort and energy, dedication and diligence to attaining enlightenment in this life. Because once you attain enlightenment, then you're going to enjoy the rest of this life with this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. For someone who attains enlightenment at death, okay, they're no longer going to be reborn in the cycle of rebirth but they live this entire life with discontentedness. They never got the opportunity to enjoy that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So the goal would be to apply determination, dedication, and diligence to learning, reflecting, and practicing, experiencing enlightenment now in this life, and then you can live the rest of this life with this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, having a wonderful rest of your life, and you'll know that you're no longer ever going to be reborn again because your mind is experiencing that enlightenment exactly as the Buddha explained. So you know he didn't just slip in the cycle of rebirth and all these other teachings that he taught were 100% the truth and led you to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And if you're experiencing that as an enlightened being and you've put the cycle of rebirth towards the end of your practice, then you know that he didn't just slip in the cycle of rebirth, even if you've never observed your past lives. But you'll know with that enlightened mind, experiencing that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, that you're never going to experience rebirth again and never have to go through any kind of misery or grief or sorrow or despair. But in order to do that, you would need to eliminate all these 10 fetters, including the pollution of mind or the fetter of wanting to exist in some form or fashion. Fetter number eight is conceit. This is the elimination of arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, or comparing, being superior or inferior to others. This is where the ego is completely dissolved. So with that personal existence view, number one, that first fetter, and this fetter, number eight, conceit, this is where the ego is completely dissolved. But conceit is different than personal existence view. Where personal existence view is thinking that this physical body or this mind is who you are as a person, projecting a certain self-image or self-identity in the world, and now getting these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings when you hear something agreeable and painful feelings when you hear something disagreeable. What conceit is, is where the mind is arrogant and prideful, judging, measuring, and comparing as being superior, inferior, this boastfulness. Where this comes from is this comes from our 
countless animal existences. Because in those animal existences, we needed certain beings to be the alpha female or the alpha male in our pack of wolves. It was our matriarch of the herd of elephants that showed us where the water was and showed us where the food was. It was our alpha female and alpha male who breeded and created this pack of wolves and they taught us how to hunt and they showed us all these things. And it was really important for us to have this certain pecking order because it was good for our survival in these other existences in the animal realm. But now in the human realm, this same thinking, this same aspect of mind carries over into our human existences. And now the mind doesn't feel comfortable when there's conceit unless it feels like it's above people or it puts itself below people. And the mind is uncommon and shaken up and unsteady when it feels like it's below people. But when we have this arrogance or this pride, we walk around thinking that, you know, we're the best thing that's ever hit the earth. And now we can't enjoy this harmony and peacefulness around other beings. We can't practice loving kindness and compassion deeply because we think that we're above others or we think that we're below other people. And this hinders our ability to now have harmonious relationships and exist peacefully and calmly with other beings because we almost have this obsession with trying to figure out who are we above and who are we below, right? If you've ever had a certain celebrity or famous person that you wanted to meet or you did meet that person and you were all shaken up and all excited and uncalm, maybe tripping over your feet, tripping over your words, this is because of the conceit. Oftentimes we think of conceit as just the arrogance and pride in putting yourself above people. But there's also this other dangerous aspect of the mind of putting yourself below people. The solution here is training the mind to just see all people as equal. This is equanimity. You need to see yourself as equal to all beings and you need to see all beings in the world as being equal, even though other people don't necessarily see it that way. You need to train your mind to see it that way. So if you have a president or prime minister in your country, and then you have other people who are doing other roles in society, you need to see these people as being equal and being the same. Even though the president might be performing certain roles in society, this other person who's over here, a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad, is just as important as the president of the country. They're just performing different roles in society. Or if we're a sanitary worker or we're doing other jobs that some people think are menial jobs, that's that arrogance, right? We should look at all jobs as being equal. If we see somebody sweeping the street and that's their job, wow, that's wonderful because now we have a clean street to walk on. That is just as important as the decisions business people are making in the, the big corporate offices or in the state capital or the capital of the country, these politicians or celebrities or business people who are really wealthy and really rich, sure, they have a lot of power, but we should view all these people as equal. And when we start viewing it that way and we start treating people that way through our practice, then that's when we can have this harmony and this peacefulness with all beings. That when we see somebody who's doing a very basic simple job, then we smile, and we're polite, and we're kind, and we're friendly, and we're respectful. We treat that person exactly the same as we would treat the president of our country or some celebrity. 
because then our practice can be permanent. When we have one way that we treat people who we think are above us, and we have another way of treating people who are below us, now the mind is utterly confused and conflicted because every time you're around somebody, you have to always figure out who am I above and who am I below? Because I'm gonna treat these people one way and I'm gonna treat these people a different way. But when you can develop your practice where you view all people equally, and you're practicing things like right intention, right speech, and right action, and you're doing all these things the same with anybody in your life and everybody that you come in contact with, now the mind can be at ease because you don't have to figure out who you're above and who you're below. You just treat all beings equally. And this is where the mind can be at ease. And it won't experience this restlessness, this number nine. This restlessness is where the mind is confused or distracted or worried, having anxiety or being anxious, this restless state of mind. This is the opposite of what the Buddha teaches as part of right concentration or singleness of mind. If the mind is shaken up or overactive, this is a restless state of mind because if there's lots of craving and this bombardment of thoughts in the mind, the mind's going to be restless. And you'll see this in your bodily movements. If you tap your finger a lot, or you're bobbing your knee, or you're shaking your foot, or you see this overactivity in the physical body, this is because the mind is overactive. So when you train the mind to be eliminating this pollution, and the mind is purified, it's unconditioned, now the mind's completely calm and content, it's peaceful, it's joyful, then you'll observe that you won't have these rapid movements in your body. The body and the person's movements will be very subdued. They will be very smooth. They will be very fluid. You won't see this rapid movement in the body because the mind isn't rapidly moving. This is why I talk about in meditation where I talk about the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. Because if the mind is overactive, then the body's gonna be overactive. But if the mind is calm and peaceful, then the body is gonna be calm and peaceful. The Buddha talked about this as saying, when the mind is tranquil, the body will be tranquil. Same thing. So an enlightened being, someone who's eliminated this ninth fetter, they won't experience this restlessness in the mind and they won't experience this restlessness in the body. They will be patient, they will be calm, the mind will be relaxed and calm, but yet attentive and alert. And this is by training the mind and honing the mind to come into the middle where it can perform optimally. It's like that musical instrument that if it's tuned too tight, if the string is real tight and you pluck the string, the instrument doesn't play the way it's intended to play. But if it's too loose and you pluck the string, it doesn't play beautiful music either. It's not playing the way it was intended to play. It's only when you tune the string perfectly in the middle that you pluck the string and the instrument plays beautiful music the way it was intended to play. So if the mind is restless or overactive, then it's not optimized. It's not playing that beautiful music. It's not in the middle. So an enlightened being having eliminated all the fetters this restlessness of mind won't exist. And you'll see that in the calmness of the body because the mind is calm. And then the 10th one is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. We also call this delusion. Most places that you learn these teachings will translate this as ignorance or delusion or misunderstanding. Oftentimes ignorance is the word that's chosen. 
But it's important to understand that a Buddha, an enlightened person, isn't going to refer to somebody as ignorant or stupid or foolish. There's actually translations out there in the world that show that the Buddha talked to people this way. An enlightened being, and surely a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, isn't going to call somebody ignorant or stupid or foolish. This isn't how an enlightened being speaks. It's not even how they think. They don't even think about people as being stupid, foolish, or ignorant. But we use this term ignorance, not in a derogatory way, but in a way to explain that the mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It has confusion or misunderstanding, this lack of wisdom, this unknowing of true reality. That's what ignorance is. It's this misunderstanding of how things really truly work in the world in terms of why does anger and sadness arise. Before you learn the Buddhist teachings, you probably didn't understand why you got angry. You probably were blaming it on other people, just like all of us, right? You probably didn't understand why the mind had guilt or shame or fear because we just think it's other people that are causing that. And all these other discontent feelings that we experience, we don't know because we have this ignorance. We have this unknowing of true reality. We have this lack of wisdom. So it's through learning the teachings of the Buddha that we transform this ignorance. We transform it through learning, reflecting, and practicing, independently verifying the teachings and training the mind. We don't gain wisdom through belief. That's why I start out all my classes and my programs. I always share with brand new students, don't believe anything that I say because belief isn't going to help you antidote ignorance. Belief, you don't know if it's true or false. You have to get to wisdom. And the only way to get to wisdom is through independent verification of the teachings. And there's a lot of teachings that you need to learn and practice in order to independently verify and get to wisdom. And this path to enlightenment isn't just about intellectual learning. You can't antidote ignorance with just intellectual learning. There's certain people in the world that have a certain degree of intellectual learning of these teachings. But how ignorance gets completely eliminated from the mind and this pollution is eliminated is when you're practicing the teachings. So someone might be able to tell you what right speech is. They might be able to explain it to you, but they're not actually practicing right speech. That's where the ignorance is truly eliminated because we can learn something intellectually, but if we're not actually able to do it, then we still have ignorance in the mind. We still have unknowing of true reality because we haven't gained the wisdom of how to move that from intellectual learning to actual practice. So that's why I always say learning, reflecting, and practicing. Because when you're practicing the teaching, such as right speech, that's where the mind is truly transforming. That's where that anger and hostility that comes through in our voice we train the mind to no longer produce speech like that. And that's where the ignorance is truly eliminated from the mind when we move these teachings into practice. And that's how you'll know that the ignorance is completely eliminated is that you will be fully practicing all these teachings of the Buddha and you'll no longer experience any discontentedness whatsoever. 
the mind will be completely enlightened where it'll be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy for a long-term period. For one to three years, you will observe that there's no discontentedness in the mind. And when you experience that, then you know you've experienced enlightenment and now you'll experience the rest of this life without any discontentedness whatsoever because you've completely eliminated all 10 fetters, including ignorance, by learning, reflecting, and practicing, moving the teachings into practice, which completely transforms the mind. So let me see what questions you guys have on this, and then we'll actually talk about the individual four stages of enlightenment now that you understand what the 10 fetters are. Well, I think we lost your connection, teacher, when you were uh, uh, explaining the difference between conceit and the first fetter. So uh, kindly, would you elaborate more about this difference? Sure. So the first fetter of personal existence view is where the mind thinks that this physical body or this mind is who you are as a person. There's this self-image and self-identity that's being projected into the world. And now if you hear agreeable or disagreeable words, then the mind's going to experience these conditioned pleasant feelings or painful feelings. Conceit is where the mind has this arrogance or this pride, this measuring and comparing as being superior or inferior. These two things together is what we call the ego, but these are actually very different. The personal existence view is that you think that this physical body is who you are or this self-identity in the mind is who you are. And now when you hear certain things or you experience certain things, the mind is shaken up based on the physical body in the mind or the self-image or the self-identity. Where conceit is walking around being boastful, arrogant, prideful, judging people, thinking you know, that person's wholesome or that person's good or this person's bad, that person's unwholesome, where you're putting yourself above or below other people. That's very different than personal existence view, where the mind thinks that there is an existence, that this body or mind is who you are. Well, let's go to Jen. Thank you, Basa. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I would like to um, see if I can explain a question I, I'm having teacher David, I'm going to explain a situation that happened to me several years ago. Um, I had a coworker who uh, was trying to control who had access to whom in our um, work area. And so she would come into people's um, you know, offices and workspaces and she would start to berate them and complain about them, um, you know, and kind of tell tell everybody what to do. And uh, she often would say things like, you're not being a team player if you do X. And so my reaction to this often was to question myself, right? Am I, is she right? Am I doing something that I need to pay attention to? And I found it very confusing, and I think I still do find that confusing when people tell me something that they wish I would do differently. I'm, I have this question about how much of it is coming from that person and how much of it should I be paying attention to because I am doing something that I should be more uh, mindful of. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when people come into your life and they're sharing these kind of things with you, right away, I mean, it's helpful to listen and to understand, 
But then now you have the Buddhist teachings to help you determine whether this is true or not. Because a person who's moving towards enlightenment, they're not going to be a follower. They're always going to be looking for the truth. And they might listen to this person. But right away, based on what you're sharing with me, this person obviously has craving, desire, attachment. They obviously probably have some arrogance, this conceit. They obviously have some ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. So any one particular situation, when someone's mind is polluted, it's not typically just one particular pollution that's arising the conflict or the difficulty that's being encountered. There's usually multiple of these pollutions that are in the way. So anything this person says right away, if they're in an unsolicited way, kind of advocating and berating people for not doing things the way that they want them to be done, this person has pollution in the mind because they're sounding like that they're not in a position to be berating other people and telling other people what to do. You know, that's unwise by itself. So we know that this person has pollution of mind. They're making unwise decisions. And right away, anything they say is somewhat suspect. But still, an enlightened being or someone that's on the path to enlightenment can listen to somebody like that and they can kind of weed through all those things and really truly listen to what they're saying to determine, is there anything that I need to look into as a person or is this truly 100% their pollution of mind, wanting things to be a certain way and because things aren't the way that they want, they're now acting out in an unskillful way. So in those situations, what you should now have available to you is the path to enlightenment. And you can look about what this person is saying to you, contrast it with the path to enlightenment and determine whether there's really anything for you to look into and whether there's really anything for you to improve about your practice. Because people are going to tell you all around you about what they want. But what they want isn't necessarily what you should be doing in your day to day life. That's a really important thing to look at. And now that you have this path to enlightenment, essentially what the Buddha is giving you is a book, you know, a blue book. He's giving you the, the secrets to life of how to live a good life. And they're not secrets, but he's giving you this path of, you know, this is how you can function in the world without causing harm to other beings. And even though other people might be demanding and trying to control you to do one thing or the other, right away that's suspicious because we shouldn't be trying to control other people to do things our way and doing that in a vengeful, degrading way. So now you've got this path to enlightenment to contrast anything that someone's sharing with you to determine whether there's really truly anything for you to look into or not. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Yeah. Let's go to Nika. Thank you, Basim. Teacher David, uh, when I hear people talking about uh, what happens when they die, not in this community, but uh, they'll often refer to that as the afterlife. But when truly, after someone attains enlightenment, that's the afterlife. Anything else is just a new existence, another life in the cycle of rebirth. Is that correct? That's the way I see it, but we should be careful with that word afterlife because we don't necessarily know that there is an afterlife and we don't know that there isn't one either in terms of what the Buddha taught. So I describe in this first book, volume one, that 
what we experience on a day-to-day basis in this constant cycle of rebirth, that's rebirth. If we are going to cause something in afterlife, it would be once we attain enlightenment and die. But we don't necessarily know that there is something next, but we don't know that there isn't anything next either. So I agree with what you're sharing, Nick, but just be careful with that term afterlife because we don't necessarily know that there is one or isn't one. Thank you, Teacher David. You're welcome. I have a question about uh, restlessness. In the examples that you gave, they sounded like extremes, but uh, I think I find, I find I'm having trouble with this restlessness, this fetter. For example, like when I'm driving the car, you know, the mind wanders a little bit. And I, you know, I try to pull it back and just focus on the road. But uh, it wanders. Um, it's not It's not a worry. It's not anxious. It's usually something in the near future coming up. Like um, something I'm just trying to figure out. You know, uh, if I got a class I got to teach. Oh, let me think. How am I going to explain this so you know, the students will understand, you know, like, you know, martial arts or something like that. Um, So it's not like I'm worried about anything. I'm not worried about failure. I'm just, you know, trying to prepare a class or if I'm going to talk uh, to my son's mom, like, like, you know, I'm just going over the things I'm going to say, maybe, Um, you know, like uh, if there's something important that came up, like just how, just how I'm going to present something. That's usually like what it is, something in the near future, but I'm not, I don't feel discontent over it, not in the extremes. I'm just, you know, uh, I would like to be able to sit down and have, uh, you know, time to just think about what, you know, when I need to do these things, but there's not always enough time in the day. So I guess like when I'm doing something else that, that uh, becomes second nature, like driving or, or, or washing the dishes or folding clothes and laundry, that's when the mind wanders and starts to think about things I need to think about. Um, So the question is, what is the best way to uh, get rid of or eliminate this fetter of restlessness? And is what I'm describing, is that the fetter of restlessness? Yes, that's restlessness because the mind isn't able to focus on just one thing at a time. So when you're washing dishes, it should just be washing dishes. Or when you're driving, it should be just driving. The mind shouldn't be wandering and thinking about countless other things. The way that you know that restlessness is there is by what you described, but also by you saying that there's just not enough time in the day because the mind wants to be doing all these different things. As you make your way to enlightenment, a being kind of makes more and more space in their life. And the way that you train the mind to not have restlessness and the way that you know restlessness is there is that oftentimes a person who has restlessness isn't comfortable just sitting in one spot and doing nothing, just sitting there for 30 minutes or an hour or just sitting on the sofa, lay on the sofa and just do nothing and just relax. Because what we're oftentimes taught is the go, 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 go. If you're not doing something, then you're not productive. The unelated mind doesn't view just sitting on a sofa or laying on a sofa for 30 minutes or an hour. They don't view that as being productive. But as you get closer to enlightenment, you understand that that's part of it all, that you've got to sit with your thoughts and just do nothing and sit on the sofa or just train the mind to relax. I had to do that when I came to Thailand because I didn't know how to do that having ran my own business for 12 years and being in corporate world and 
being in American culture, I was go, 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 go all the time. So when I came here, I had to train my mind to learn how to relax and create all this space in my life. So what I would suggest that you do is start training the mind to just be comfortable, just sitting still. And it might be just five or 10 minutes to get started, like your meditation. But then you expand that to 30 minutes or an hour. And you see just sitting on the sofa, doing nothing, just sitting with your thoughts, perhaps that that's productive or just laying on the sofa or laying in bed for 30 minutes or an hour, not doing anything other than just processing thoughts of things that happened yesterday or things you're planning to do today. And then over time, this empties out more and more and you can just be perfectly content, either just sitting on the sofa, laying on the sofa, laying in bed for a certain period of time every now and again. And then when you get up and do the things that you're going to do in your daily life, they'll be much more thought out because you spent that quiet time just thinking over and reflecting what it is that you're doing in life. Oftentimes we fill our life with so many things that we don't take that time to reflect and just be with our own thoughts that we're just go, 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 go. And this is where we react instead of respond. So as you learn these teachings and you're working on reflection and practice, it's really good to get into a kind of normal time where you're comfortable and okay with just laying and doing nothing, you know, every once in a while. I say I would probably do this, you know, maybe for me right now, I probably do this three or four times a week where I'll just lay or sit somewhere and do nothing and just sit there and think through all the different things that are going on in my life and evaluating whether I'm making wise decisions in certain situations or not. And this is how you come to more and more wisdom. And then when you get up and go do the things that you're going to do, you're able to handle those much more readily because you spent the time with your own thoughts and thinking them through. And then this way, your mind won't be restless, just wanting to go, 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 because you're content in your daily life, driving down the street, just focusing on driving. Then you show up to where you're at and you're able to handle that situation or if you're washing dishes you're just completely content washing dishes and then when you're not washing dishes if you need to sit and think somewhere then you just go sit and think somewhere so rather than washing dishes and thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow that's having the mind do two things instead just focus on the dishes and then when you're done sit and think about what you're going to do tomorrow then you've got these two different things but you're doing them single threaded one at a time and this will train the mind to not have this restlessness thank you teacher um i'm able to sit in meditation with no problem i'm able to take classes with no problem um so you're saying to um in addition to meditation and these sorts of things, to have another time where we just sit down and process thoughts. Absolutely. When, okay, so that's an addition to it. Yes, when, and it doesn't have to be every day, but you know, probably a good three times a week, you probably are gonna need that space depending on what activity you've got going on in your life. You know, maybe a retired person who doesn't have as much activity, they're not raising kids anymore, you know, they don't have as many interactions with people. They may not need to do that as frequently. And you don't even have to schedule it, but you just need to be sure you're taking time for your thoughts and processing the thoughts and reflecting. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe I'll do it uh, around the same time of some meditations. That's what I'm thinking. Maybe to start, I'll see how that goes. That can be helpful. After you've meditated, it can be really helpful to 
sit there and process what's going on in life because the mind's more clear at that time. But you don't have to have this permanent fixed schedule of when you're going to do these things, but you need to get used to that because the cultures that we live in and the society that we live in doesn't really promote that. Other people don't necessarily see that as productive. But as you do that and you see that it is productive, that it's actually helping you in life to spend that 30 minutes or 15 minutes or an hour every so often, it's actually helping you to be a better individual and and make wiser decisions. Oftentimes we think all this time meditating and all, you know, this time sitting and reflecting, it's going to take away from me being able to do stuff where that's the mind craving and longing to do stuff. What you're interested in doing is not just doing stuff and not just getting through a to-do list. What you're interested in doing is when you do stuff, doing it well and making wise decisions. And if you keep that as your goal, then this meditation and this time to just sit and relax and reflect, that's going to ensure that when you're in daily life making decisions, that you're doing it well. That's what you're looking for. Thank you, teacher. That's very helpful. You're welcome. We have a question on YouTube from Max. He asks, these 10 fetters are done all at the same time, correct? We work on them at the same time? What you're going to see in the four stages of enlightenment is that as you progress through the four stages, you're eliminating certain ones at a certain time. What you're doing early in practice is you're putting together the Eightfold Path. You're putting together understanding the three universal truths, four noble truths, Eightfold Path, the five precepts. You're working on developing your meditation practice and a lot of other things I'm going to teach you as part of this program. And you're really focusing on that. But something like conceit, this is a really challenging one for a lot of people to get rid of. So even though it's an upper fetter and it's one that actually gets eliminated by the time you get to the fourth stage of enlightenment, at any point that you see arrogance or pride arising in the mind, you can cut that off and let that go. You don't have to wait to a specific time to be able to work on conceit and eliminate it. You can actually work on it at any time. Uh, wherever you see it arise. So that's why I kind of share these up front in the beginning of this program so that anytime you see any of these fetters arise, you can work on eliminating them. But what a beginning practitioner is really working on most closely and is challenged with at the beginning is really getting the Eightfold Path really well underway. The Buddha used to focus his new students on developing their moral conduct first. So that would be like the five precepts, That would be right speech, right action, or right livelihood. Because as long as you're out in the world interacting with unwholesome moral conduct, that's going to just keep coming back to you and making more and more difficulties in your life. So if you can clean up your moral conduct first, things like substances and lying and sexual misconduct, stealing, killing, things like that, you know, working on right speech, getting that really well refined, these kind of things are going to produce a lot of results because you're causing harm by doing these things in the world. So the Buddha would always focus students on working on the moral conduct first and cleaning that up. And that's what I would suggest too, is work on getting that eightfold path, which includes meditation really well underway. And then wherever you see any of these fetters arising, you would like to work on eliminating them. But then when you're in the jhanas, that's where you really start focusing on these fetters. But if you notice, 
what I was talking about around central desire, for example, about breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity, you're already working on that because I share that at the very beginning of the program and you're already working towards that. Ill will, you know, the antidote to that is loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness. That's something that's at the very beginning of this program. So even though you might not consciously start working on some of these fetters until a little bit later after you put all the Eightfold Path together, a person who's guiding you through this path, I already know what these 10 fetters are. I already know what you need to be working on. So I've structured the program that I teach and all the programs and classes that I teach in such a way that you are working on all of these even early on like this. But you're going to be more conscious about working on these once you start nearing close to the jhanas and you've got all these other pieces in place because the mind's not going to be ready to let go of something like personal existence view until you've got all this foundational teachings underway and practicing really well. You can't just jump in and snap your fingers and eliminate personal existence view. So I always focus students on developing the foundational teachings first, but I'm guiding them in such a way that they are working on some of these, but the real conscious focus on these doesn't really happen until you get a little bit further along. No more questions for that teacher. All right. Well, let's talk about the four stages of enlightenment now, because it's these 10 fetters that you're eliminating as you're putting together those foundational teachings and you start eliminating them, that you move through these four stages. The stages are stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and arahant. And then there's this unique individual called a Buddha who is an arahant. An arahant is someone who's eliminated all the 10 fetters. A Buddha is an arahant, but they've done this in a certain way and their life becomes a certain type of life that we're going to explain here in a little bit. These four stages of enlightenment are referred to this way as stream enter, once returner, non-returner, and otter hunt for a certain reason. Because when you're in those four preliminary phases that we call the jhanas, the mind can actually regress out of those. You can experience a regression if you became complacent for any reason. The mind can actually regress backwards. But once you're a stream enter, which is the first stage of enlightenment, the mind won't regress backwards from there. And the Buddha called it stream enter because he described getting to the ocean as getting to enlightenment. And the stream leads to the ocean or enlightenment. So a log that enters the stream is going to eventually get to the ocean. And it's just a matter of time. So someone who's done all the work to get to that first stage of enlightenment as a stream enterer, they've entered the stream. It's only a matter of time before they get to enlightenment. They still need to do the work. They still need to remain diligent. Getting to the first stage of enlightenment is like getting to base camp at Mount Everest. If you were going to try to get to the summit of Mount Everest, you would have to first get your way to base camp. But people don't just end up at base camp by mistake. They're going to have to do a whole lot of other hiking. They're going to have to understand equipment and tools and techniques and accumulate a bunch of knowledge and wisdom in order to get to base camp at Mount Everest. And now that they're at base camp, they have the potential to get to the summit but it's not guaranteed that they're gonna to get to the summit. They still have to do a lot of work to get to the summit. Well, someone who's in this first stage of enlightenment, they're gonna to get to the summit because they've seen enough of the truth. 
but it may take them multiple lives before they actually get to this summit or to enlightenment. A stream enter would have eliminated the first three fetters. They would have eliminated personal existence view, doubt, and wrong behavior and observances. And they would have accumulated enough wisdom to now have all the tools that they need in order to continue on their journey and actually get to enlightenment. This person that is a stream enter would have significantly reduced their discontentedness. They would still be experiencing discontentedness. They will still even experience anger because they still have ill will, but they will have significantly diminished that. And in this first stage of enlightenment, if somebody dies in the first stage of enlightenment, they will be reborn back into the human realm and they will reborn a maximum of seven times. It doesn't mean they have to be reborn seven times, but a maximum of seven times. So someone could be off this path and never have studied these teachings at any other life, and they could make their way to stream entry and actually continue on all the way to enlightenment. There's no requirement that you're gonna get to stream entry, and then you have to die seven times in order to get to enlightenment. It's just that if somebody dies in the stage of enlightenment of a stream enter, they will get to enlightenment. It's just a matter of more rebirth in order to provide them enough opportunities to accumulate the wisdom to get to enlightenment. And then if they're reborn into the human realm or when they're reborn into the human realm, they're not starting off at stream entry. They are actually going to be a baby again and they're gonna just like they have to learn how to read, write, walk, eat, take care of the physical body and all these other things that individual who was a stream enter in a previous life, they're going to still have to develop their practice to get back to stream entry and beyond, but it's going to be a bit easier for them because in a previous life, they have already learned and practiced these teachings. So if you have encountered these teachings and you find that they just make sense to you and it's fairly straightforward, you're still having to do work. It's still a struggle, but it's fairly straightforward and the teachings just make sense to you, there's a good chance that you might have learned and practiced these teachings in a previous life. Whereas if you find these teachings to be a real struggle and really challenged at every step of the way, there's a good chance that you may not have actually learned these teachings in a past life and that's why it is such a challenge for you. Then there's this second stage of enlightenment called a once returner. This individual, if you die in this stage of enlightenment, only comes back to the human realm one more time and then they will actually attain enlightenment in that next rebirth. They've already eliminated the first three fetters of personal existence view, doubt, and wrong behavior and observances. But now this person in the second stage of enlightenment has greatly thinned central desire and ill will, meaning there's not as much of it there. And this person's discontentedness has diminished pretty significantly as well, above and beyond what a stream enter will experience. In these first stages of enlightenment, this first and second stage, an individual is still able to have sexual intercourse and experience the benefits of the first and second stage of enlightenment. So if somebody's young and they aspire to have a family or they aspire to have a partner and have sexual intercourse, 
you guys might actually learn and practice these teachings, get all the way up to the first and second stage of enlightenment, continue to enjoy your sexual intercourse, or if you're going to develop a family, have a family, and just kind of hang out here for a while with this significantly diminished discontentedness, but have all this wisdom about these natural laws of existence and have a pretty peaceful life for yourself. And then once you've decided that you've had enough sexual intercourse, you know, kind of been there, done that, maybe in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, who knows, then you might make your way the rest of the way to non-returner and otter hunt. Because a non-returner will have eliminated all the five lower fetters. They will have eliminated personal existence view, doubt, wrong behavior and observances, sensual desire and ill will. These will be completely eliminated from the mind, no longer arise ever again. But this person is still experiencing discontentedness to a very minimal degree, uh, maybe some ickiness. And they know exactly why it's occurring. They know exactly how to solve it and they can address it pretty readily. This person, if they die in this third stage of enlightenment, they're not yet enlightened. So they are going to be reborn, but they're going to be reborn in the heavenly realm and from that heavenly realm, they will attain enlightenment. There's other ways to get to the heavenly realm besides being a non-returner. And those beings that come to the heavenly realm in other ways, they can attain enlightenment from there, but oftentimes they're reborn down into other realms. But a non-returner who's reborn into the heavenly realm, they will absolutely attain enlightenment from that realm and no longer be reborn ever again. But even in that heavenly existence, there's still discontentedness. So this isn't a desirable existence in terms of being in this third stage of enlightenment, being reborn in heaven, and then attaining enlightenment from there and moving on. The goal would be to get to the fourth stage of enlightenment, which is an otter hunt. This stage of enlightenment, a being has eliminated all 10 fetters. They've been completely eliminated, destroyed, obliterated. The Buddha describes them as no more subject to future arising. They will never arise up in the mind again. The mind has been completely purified of all these fetters, all these pollutions. There's no longer any discontentedness whatsoever, and there's no longer any rebirth in any realm whatsoever. This being is going to experience their very last existence in this human realm. As they experience enlightenment, they're no longer experiencing any discontentedness. So the mind's going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, no longer experiencing any discontentedness. Then there's what's called a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. A fully perfectly enlightened Buddha is not a stage of enlightenment. It's a unique individual who certain things have come together in order to allow this individual to attain enlightenment on their own. So a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha attains enlightenment without the guidance of any teachers. They're able to do that because over countless lifetimes, they've accumulated the wisdom that in their last life, they're able to remember and recall all of that wisdom, and it all comes to fruition in their last life to be able to attain enlightenment on their own. This is why we call them fully perfectly enlightened, because they're not influenced by other teachers. Someone who attains enlightenment as an enlightened being is an arahant, just like a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. But that arahant who's learned from a teacher 
they're an enlightened being. They're not a Buddha. And they were needed the guidance of a teacher in order to get to enlightenment. And sometimes, depending on who you've learned with, that enlightened being, maybe 60, 70, 80% of what they know actually led to their enlightenment, where maybe 10 or 20% of what they know is actually just kind of baggage left over from their teacher that they just kind of practice out of admiration or respect for their teacher, but it didn't truly lead to their enlightenment. So an enlightened being will sometimes have with them a little bit of extra baggage that isn't the true pure path to enlightenment, where a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha doesn't have this baggage from teachers because they attain this mental state on their own. So a Buddha, if they try a certain meditation that they've come up with and it doesn't work, they will discard it. They will no longer practice it. And then when they practice a certain meditation and they observe that it's working, they know that that's the path to enlightenment. Where an enlightened being who maybe got to enlightenment they might be performing different meditations and they might just hold on to a certain meditation, still getting to enlightenment, but that particular meditation didn't really necessarily lead to their enlightenment, but it was something else. But they wouldn't necessarily know that with clarity of mind because their mind has a little bit of extra baggage in it. So a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha is one who's attained enlightenment on their own with their own efforts without the guidance of any teachers. So they deeply understand the wisdom of what it takes to attain enlightenment and they can articulate that with ease. Then the next criteria is that they declare the teachings that led to their own enlightenment guiding countless beings to enlightenment during their lifetime. Essentially, they dedicate the entire rest of their life from the time that they awaken to enlightenment to sharing their teachings that led to their own enlightenment with countless beings. And because their wisdom is so deep and so profound, they can guide countless people to enlightenment. Where an enlightened being, they'll be able to help a lot of people get to enlightenment but not in the same way as an actual Buddha who's fully, perfectly enlightened. So a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, not only have they discovered these teachings on their own, but they now dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings into the world in such a way that countless beings during their lifetime is going to attain enlightenment. And then the third main criteria or primary criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they leave their teachings in a condition that after their death, countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death. So they awake to enlightenment by themselves without the guidance of teachers. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings into the world and countless beings will attain enlightenment. And then they leave their teachings in such a condition that countless more beings will attain enlightenment after their death. These are the three primary criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha. And this isn't really discernible until the person's actually died. And this is the reason why during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, the vast majority of the people refer to him as teacher Gautama or aesthetic Gautama or master teacher Gautama. They didn't even refer to him as a Buddha until he really died. He himself didn't even refer to himself as a Buddha. He really referred to himself mostly as the Tathagata, which means the one who's discovered the truth. So it's not until a being actually dies that we can see that all three of these criteria have actually been satisfied. And then we know that this person is actually a Buddha.
there's other criteria as well that distinguishes this unique type of individual as being a Buddha. And a Buddha is very rare. The last one that is currently known to the world existed over 2,500 years ago. One of the unique things about a Buddha, an individual who is a Buddha, not only do they meet those three criterias that I mentioned, but they have a unique quality of mind that other beings don't have. A Buddha has a profound memory, being able to recall countless details about their existing life and their past lives. They have an excellent memory above and beyond what an average human being is going to have. So for example, you have certain memories right now about your childhood. You have little blotches here and there of things that you can remember. Well, a Buddha has such a profound memory that they can remember countless details, utterly clear details about every single aspect of things that happened to them in their existing life and in past lives as well. This is how they accumulate enough wisdom to be able to attain enlightenment by themselves because over countless lives, they've been having certain experiences that then accumulates to certain wisdom that now they can attain enlightenment on their own, they can share that wisdom with countless beings during their lifetime, and then they ensure the teachings are preserved in such a way that countless more beings can attain enlightenment after their death. An average individual who's not a Buddha, their mind is kind of like a hard drive, which is got a certain capacity. Once all the memories have been written on a hard drive, if there's more things to remember, you have to overwrite old memories in order to write these new memories, just like a hard drive. So that's why you have really clear memory about things that are kind of happening in your life now, you know, maybe back to five or 10 years ago, but back from childhood, there's just kind of some blotchy memories because things have been overwritten. Where a Buddha doesn't have that, they don't have a limited capacity of memory, their memory is unlimited in terms of they can remember countless details about this life and past lives as well, which all accumulates into wisdom that actually comes together for them to attain enlightenment in this life. They're also able to quickly determine the condition of the mind of other people. And they will use this ability with their students. They don't do it as a way to degrade people or put people down or diminish people, but instead through observing interactions with people around them, particularly their students, they can observe all these different fetters and these pollutions of mind that their students have, and then they're able to provide them teachings that are going to help them eradicate those pollutions. So while they have this ability to determine the condition of other people's minds, they don't go around and just willy-nilly, so to speak, tell people what the pollution of mind is. They use this ability for those students who come to ask them questions and who seek guidance with them, then as the students are seeking guidance, they understand these pollutions of minds really well. They understand their teachings very well. They have this deep wisdom and now they can offer the teachings in such a way that it allows that student to make a lot of progress. So if you're studying with an actual Buddha, you can make progress really, really quickly. Where with an average enlightened being, if you're studying with that person, you just might make kind of certain amount of progress and you'll make good progress, but not the same as if you're studying with an actual Buddha. This is why in terms of 
living a human existence. If you live during the lifetime of an actual Buddha, this is the most ideal time to actually attain enlightenment because that individual has deep wisdom to understand the teachings and share those with you, but they can also observe your quality of mind and then be able to provide you exactly the teachings you need. So students of an actual Buddha will tend to progress through the path to enlightenment at a much more readily pace than kind of an average person who's studying with an average enlightened being. And then lastly, one of the aspects of a Buddha, and there's others as well, but one of the other aspects of a Buddha is that they're a deep, deep, deep practitioner of their own teachings. They lead by example. They're essentially a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. They don't teach right speech and practice wrong speech. They don't teach you know, right mindfulness and practice wrong mindfulness, for example, or they don't teach right concentration and practice wrong concentration. Their practice is very deep and really well developed that they're a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. They teach through discourses and sharing teachings like what I'm sharing with you today. But one of the ways that a Buddha actually relies on to teach the most is through their actual practice, through their intentions, their speech and their actions, their students get to interact with a Buddha who's deeply practicing the teachings and their students can actually learn by observing the Buddha in the way that they're actually practicing. And this is one of the ways that a Buddha brings their teachings into the world is not just through discourses, but through actually practicing their own teachings and being a role model, so to speak. Not a self-identified role model, but a Buddha understands that people are watching them and observing them and they can teach just as much, if not more, through deeply practicing the teachings themselves and through their own intention, speech, and actions, their students are gleaning the benefit of observing a Buddha deeply practicing their teachings, that they're a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. And now this is one of the ways that their students start to learn the teachings and bring the teachings into their life by observing this Buddha and the way that they function in the world, then they can observe those various qualities of their practice and then incorporate them into their own life and in their own practice. So these are the four stages of enlightenment and what a Buddha is, this unique individual that we refer to as a Buddha. And the Buddha talks about how rare it is that someone is going to arise as a Buddha. There are some traditions of Buddhist teachings that will tell you that if you get to enlightenment, you will be a Buddha. But from what I just shared with you, I think you can understand that while you can get to enlightenment, you're not going to be a Buddha because you need to have teachers and guides. You don't have this ability to attain enlightenment by yourself. You're probably not going to dedicate the remaining time of your life to sharing the teachings in such a way that countless beings can attain enlightenment during your lifetime. You're not going to declare the teachings and preserve them in such a way that countless more people can attain enlightenment after your death. You know that you don't have a memory that you can understand and remember countless details about your existing life and past lives. You probably have 
challenges and quickly determining the condition of people's minds and be able to offer them teachings immediately that is going to be able to help them. And you probably aren't a living, breathing, walking example of these teachings that you got to on your own because you're not getting to them on your own. So these are the things that are going to help you understand the 10 fetters, the four stages of enlightenment, and what a Buddha is. But now that I've shared with you what a Buddha is, it's important to understand that a Buddha doesn't see themselves as anything special. Even though a Buddha knows that a Buddha is rare in the world, a Buddha's mind functions in the same exact way as everybody else's mind. While they have this profound memory, in terms of craving anger and ignorance, a person who became a Buddha had that same craving, anger, and ignorance before they became a Buddha. They experienced the same 10 fetters. They experienced the same struggles and difficulties in life that every other being is experiencing. But they've overcome that. And because of overcoming that, now they're in a very good position to be able to offer those teachings to help all of humanity based on their loving kindness and compassion. So why a Buddha knows that their teachings are going to be very helpful and impactful to the world and to humanity, they don't see themselves as being special or a higher status. I heard something on TV just the other day that said, a Buddha is already enlightened, so he doesn't have to respect anybody. And I just started busting out laughing because a Buddha is going to respect people even more so than every other being in the world. So it's not that a Buddha is a Buddha and they're enlightened, so therefore they don't have to respect everybody. A Buddha became a Buddha because they respected everybody and they will continue to respect people. They're practicing their teachings very deeply as a living, breathing, walking example because they know that this is what's going to help other people in the world to model those same teachings and bring them into their life. So let me see what questions you guys have on any of the things that I discussed today. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand electronically and ask the questions in Zoom. Well, out of curiosity, I want to ask about uh, this, uh, the fourth point about uh, the memory of a Buddha. Is this a special or unique type of memory? A, uh, the person who will be a Buddha has this memory in only the last life, or this was even from his uh, uh, previous human lives? It's only in their last life when they're actually a Buddha. In those previous lives, they weren't a Buddha yet, so their mind didn't have that profound memory, or else they would have been a Buddha in those previous lives. So it's only in that last life that they have that profound memory to then be able to remember their previous lives. Thanks, teacher. Seems that this is all that they have for today. All right. Well, I would like to thank all of you for joining today's class. As you see, this Path to Enlightenment, it's very deep. It's very detailed. It's very extensive. This concludes our four classes that I was sharing in order to give you this overview, but yet this in-depth understanding of what this Path to Enlightenment is. And this is to give you kind of an understanding of what you're embarking on in this journey. And if it sounds like a lot, yeah, it's a lot, but you don't actually learn all this stuff in just one class or even four classes and start implementing it right away and you become an expert on it right away. 
when you're standing at the bottom of the mountain and you look up at the mountain, the mountain looks really tall. But as you're making your way up the mountain and you get closer to the top, you realize that the mountain wasn't really as tall as you thought it was when you were standing at the bottom. So right now, if you're just starting out on the path, you might feel like the mountain is quite tall. But in reality, you've got a guide, you've got a teacher, you've got other members of our community that are here to support you and encourage you along the way, providing you the guidance and the resources that you need. These four classes were just to really help you observe what you're being guided towards if this is what you choose to embark on this journey to enlightenment. And now what we're going to start doing is we're going to go chapter by chapter through this book gradually, slowly, but surely over the next six months. So the entire program is seven months, but now it's going to take us six months to go through this book chapter by chapter. And this is the best way to do it is little by little. This gradual training, this gradual practice, and this gradual progress. One of the biggest myths about the Buddha's life is that some people think that he sat under a tree, you know, clicked his fingers, and essentially attained enlightenment in an instant. But it was gradual. So it took him six years to attain enlightenment. And he was really working on this even in prior lives as well. So it's going to take you some time, but when you have somebody that can help you and you have a community and you have the true teachings of the words of the Buddha, these things all make it so much easier for you. So there'll be challenges and there'll be struggles and difficulties, but this is the last struggle of all struggles. And it's in that struggle that the mind is developing and accumulating the most wisdom. If you turn away from the struggle and you walk away from the struggle, then you're not giving the mind the opportunity to develop the wisdom. So if you find that any part of this path that the mind is struggling, that's really good. Walk towards that struggle, revel in that struggle, roll up the sleeves and get like a sloppy pig in the mud with that struggle because that's where you're going to gain the wisdom and ensure that that thing doesn't happen again and ensure that struggle doesn't happen again because if you can gain the wisdom that you need in that struggle then you can make decisions to ensure that that same thing doesn't happen again because everything that happens in your life is based on your decisions so if you're meeting with a struggle and you can gain as much wisdom as possible, then you can make improved decisions in the future to ensure that that doesn't happen again in your life. And that's what it's going to take to actually progress to enlightenment. So as we go here, feel free to reach out asking questions in class, post questions in Facebook as you need to ask questions. You can schedule personal guidance sessions with me and you can send me personal messages. From this point forward, you're going to start seeing posts show up in our Facebook group, which is going to be a post per day. Every day you'll see posts in black that is the group learning program, which is essentially I've taken this book and I've chopped it up into all these posts, essentially seven posts a week for the most part over the next six months. So I'm going to be posting into the Facebook group this book. But if you download this book, you can read it, of course, and you can read it little by little, maybe 10 minutes a day, which will help you to gradually bring these teachings into the mind, learning them, reflecting on them, and then practicing them. Because when I teach in class like this, I'm drawing out the lessons of this book into the class, but I'm not able to teach everything that's in this book. So if you read this book and come to class, then you're getting the full details of what's being shared. And then there are some classes that I teach 
things that aren't in this book. So the combination between reading the book and learning the classes, whether you're coming to the class live or you're listening to it on the replay in the podcast or any other way that we distribute content, these two things together is what's going to help you to learn, reflect, and practice the teachings. You're going to need help along the way. Sometimes we feel that asking a question to the teacher is bothering the teacher or it's going to be perceived as I'm the teacher's pet or something like this. We have all these conditioning of mind around learning. And sometimes one of the things we need to learn is how to be a very good student. So being a good student for you is you definitely need to spend some time with the book. You're definitely going to need to spend time in classes. And I'm sure you're going to need to reach out at different times for clarity. This is what I do. I've dedicated the rest of my life to sharing these teachings with all those that have a sincere interest in learning and practicing. So you aren't bothering me by asking me questions. In fact, the more questions you ask, it helps me to see where you are in your learning. And I can discern that just based on the questions that you're asking. And it actually helps to make the class even that much more fuller when questions are being asked because I tend to teach at a certain level of detail and then I go into more depth as students ask questions. So don't hesitate in asking questions either in the Facebook group, in the class, sending a personal message or by sending a request for a personal guidance session where we can meet one-on-one in Zoom and we can talk there. And remember, we have retreats and we have other classes here in Chiang Mai that you're welcome to learn in person as well. You're welcome to come to the retreat in the USA this summer, which is the last week of June. Uh, We have classes going on here in Chiang Mai all the time, so you're welcome to come to these as well. And as you learn over the next few years, you will see that if you approach this without belief, but by learning, reflecting, and practicing to discern the truth, and acquire wisdom that the condition of the mind will gradually improve. But you've got to do your part, right? I can share the teachings, but you have to deliver on the determination, the dedication, and the diligence. You have to do your work. So if you're willing to do the inner work, I'm willing to do all the work to share the teachings with you. But you've got to put in that extra piece of the diligence. So thank you all for progressing to this point where you've been learning for four weeks and know that there's a whole lot more for you to learn and all these resources are available for you free of charge. You can go to our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. From there, you can download the books. You can get access to the podcast, to the videos and all these other things. And as you need help, I'm here to help you. So thank you for taking the time to focus on your own practice because As you develop your practice, this is the best thing that's ever going to produce results in your life. It's going to improve the condition of your mind in the condition of your life, which means by you improving the way you function in the world, the people close to you are also going to experience the benefits of you functioning differently. And then by you functioning differently and the people close to you being able to experience that, you're also helping all of humanity to become a more peaceful and joyful place to exist. So thank you for all the dedication that you've put in so far. And then let's continue forward on this journey. So I'll see you in the next class on Sunday, which is going to be chapter one. You can read that and prepare either before and or after class. And we'll progress slowly through the program. 
or you can also join this Wednesday where we're doing our fourth class of a four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation. And then after that, we're going to be starting with loving kindness meditation. So I'll see you in one of our future classes. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.